to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, and this is the show that helps you punch above your weight when you negotiate the sale of your company. And today's edition is a unique one. It's called Built to Sell Intel, where I break down four previous episodes of Built to Sell Radio and try to draw out the transferable lessons for you, the things that struck me in doing the interviews that I think you could take away and learn and put to good use. So this is four stories. And it's also an opportunity for you to ask questions. We do this live. And so if you're listening to this on the recorded version, there's an opportunity to actually join live. And when you join live, you can ask your own questions. So if you want to join live next time, all you need to do is opt in at builttosell.com. There's a little button that says free gifts, download those, and you'll be automatically invited to each of our upcoming editions of Built to Sell Intel. You can join the live studio audience, ask whatever questions you have, and uh, that's a big part of the show for us. So I hope you will join us over at builttosell.com. Just opt in and we'll get you an invite for the next episode. But right now, I'm gonna pass you over to my colleague, Jeremy Weiss, who is going to take us through as the host of Built to Sell Intel. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome everybody to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the Intel edition. My co-host and partner in crime is Jeremy Weiss. Jeremy, take us away. I'm excited. And I tell everyone, John, first of all, go to builttosell.com and I tell people, log in, register um, your email so that you can get these alerts for the webinars because you ask live questions. So encourage your friends, anyone, uh, and put your live questions in the chat. This will be a podcast episode as well, but put them in the chat so you're here and we get to answer all your questions. So um, just this is about recapping the biggest takeaways from the last month on Built to Sell Radio. And as you know, if you listen, John overlays his thoughts and advice and so I'm excited to hear that because he's asking all the questions usually. Um, and so we get to hear his thoughts on all these interviews. And if you don't know, John uh, is the founder of the Value Builder System, which is a practice management software that helps business advisors automate their processes to win and keep the best clients. And you know, it, it incorporates a several di you know, diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder score, and it's offered by a global network of certified Value Builder advisors. So, and I don't know if you know this, but those businesses that achieve a value builder score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. So got to check that out on Built to Sell. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books and has been translated in 12 languages. And Jen, I don't know what the ratio is. It could be you know, half the guests come on, reference your book, that they read the book and that <laughs> yeah. they took notes on the book and then they have selling. So it's tried and true in the, you're being used in the trenches by entrepreneurs today. And oh, you also really wrote, flattering. Yeah, yeah, don't you say, I mean, I don't know what the ratio is, but I think it's at least 50% mention it. Okay. Um, he also wrote the automatic customer creating a subscription business. And then the newest one, the art of selling your business, winning strategies and secret hacks for exiting at the top. So you can check all this out at built to sell.com built to sell radio. And the first one, John is uh, Melissa Kwan and she was co-founder and built Spacio. Yeah. Spacio is a cool business. They, have you ever gone into like an open house, Jeremy, where there's that like that piece of paper, that you know, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper where the agent says, hey, you know, sign your name here and add your phone number. I mean, 
it's the same in Chicago. I'm assuming they do that. I mean, they do it in Toronto. They do it in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Like old school, right? Like it's such an analog idea, but Melissa, to her credit, said there's got to be a better way because here's what I do when I get one of those sheets. I don't want the follow-up from the agent. I don't particularly kind of want to, you know, engage a bunch of back and forth. So when I go to an open house, I like scribble my name. So it's ill eligible, illegible, I should say. And the phone number just happens to be slightly wrong. And so as a result, I never get follow-up. Melissa in her wisdom identified that I'm not alone in this. There's lots of people that show up at open houses and do exactly that. And so what she did was took a basic form and put it on an iPad and encouraged agents, instead of taking an eight and a half, 11 piece of paper out of a you know, notebook, give open house guests this iPad and have them sign in. What does that do? A, it obviously helps them create a more legible uh, you know, uh, name and, 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 and so forth. But it also gives them a little bit more privacy because one of the other things she noticed was that people didn't want to put their contact information on this public sheet. Some people didn't want their neighbors to know they had kind of wandered by this open house. And so there's this privacy issue as well. And so Melissa's like, we can just solve this very simply with a form. And that's what she did with Spacio. You know, a couple of things stuck out for me in this interview. I want to hear any thoughts you have about it. But the um, relationships, there was seemed to be family strain, right? Um, mm. And support. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, things are hard enough as it is, right? And when we don't have a support system or, or the, our support system is not on board and supporting us. Because even at the end of the interview, John, you go, I'm going to call your dad. And tell him, you remember, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 I, I do. And and it was a heartfelt story for, if you haven't listened to the episode, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Melissa describes a point in her journey where her parents, um, she stopped talking to her parents really, because they really didn't approve of her entrepreneurial journey, thought she should quote, get a real job. And she got to a point where her father uh, you know, stop talking to her and she stopped talking to him. And, and ultimately I think they were able to somewhat reconcile, but, but I jokingly said at the end, like, I'm going to call him and tell him what a success you are. Uh, because to the outside, it's not always, um, it's not always obvious that the, you know, there's a master plan. And I asked Melissa, you know, cause she did go through enormous hardship. She, she got down to one meal a day cause she didn't want to uh, spend money. She kept getting invited to these free conferences and she, you know, she'd stock up, you know, the person going by the buffet table, putting the, the kind of <laughs> dinner buns in their jacket. Like that was, that was Melissa. And she, I mean, that was the extent to which she wanted to be successful. And, and in the end, she persevered and, and was triumphant, but it was a really long road. And I think that was quite a, quite a uh, sobering for me to hear just how, how much strain it caused in her family relationship. I mean, this is, I, I think, one of the rawest interviews I've listened to. And so I encourage anyone to listen to the whole thing. Is there, you know, and this is pretty common. I mean, even if it's not like not talking to a spouse or family member, people have this expectation of taking the traditional route. I'm curious, uh, I'm sure you hear this, um, are there any things that you would 
give advice on to navigate that pressure mm. of, hey, well, even with spouses, like, hey, this isn't working. Maybe you should go get a job. And that, yeah. that as an entrepreneur, like stabs someone in the gut, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, my advice would be, you know, really think twice before you raise capital from friends and family. I know it's a very tried and true route for a lot of people to raise capital, but in particular, if, if those investors are, uh, you know, if it's a big portion of their wealth that they're investing with your company and that they're going to be all over you asking you for updates and, and pressuring you to sell. I mean, well, Melissa, was lucky enough she had an uncle that she raised some money from and and he was fairly hands off and that was that was great to a lucky break but for a lot of the entrepreneurs i hear from you know they want to get their you know family off their backs is one of the reasons they sell and so you don't need the added pressure i think of having literally your friends and family sort of acting as nosy investors wanting to know sort of when they're going to get their money back M most you know businesses take years to get off the ground. You know, I think 10 years is probably a pretty good stretch to see a business really hit its stride. And so if if a, if a family member is expecting a return on their investment in, in a year or two, it just can be an added layer of pressure. So I, I wouldn't do that. The other thing, you know, thinking more positively about Melissa, and my key takeaway from the Melissa story for any entrepreneur listening is, is sometimes the best advice, sorry, the best ideas sometimes the best ideas are actually not ideas at all. Like Melissa took a sign-in form at a open house and made it digital. <laughs> like the sign-in form existed before. She had a very slight improvement on it, making it digital and making it more legible and more uh, um, less public and more private, if you will. That was it. You know, I'm reminded of a you know, spectacular success story in Starbucks. I mean, Howard Schultz, you know, didn't start Starbucks, right? He bought the two-store franchise, and it was really only after he was inspired by looking at it working the model of an experiential coffee experience in, in Italy. And, and that's when he sort of said, okay, I can do this in America. It wasn't a new idea. There were coffee shops all around. He brought a fresh flavor. I know that's an old you know, tried and true story, but Melissa just is that constant reminder of some of the best ideas are not these like completely harebrained ideas that have no proof that they're going to work. They're oftentimes working already and you're making a slight improvement. Yeah. And uh, I encourage anyone put your questions in the chat. Um, there was a point, I think, I think she was raising money from someone and they basically told her, cut everything else out into, except for this one thing. And I don't even think they, I don't think at that point they listened to that person until they needed to, right? They needed yeah. to just make something work. Yeah, I think this is a really common trap that a lot of us as entrepreneurs fall into. And, and that is kind of scope creep in our ideas. And in Melissa's case, she had built an entire sort of practice management software for real estate agents. This one little kind of elegant app of a sign-in form was just that elegant and needed in the marketplace. The other uh, you know, email uh, contact management, I mean, there were already existing solutions in the marketplace and a lot of her stuff was me too. And, you know, and again, I, I, I think this is such an important lesson. When, when I, I use the, the corollary or the, the example of cable television, you know, when we think about you know, paying $100 a month for a cable TV plan, 
you know, on a per channel basis, we're, 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 we're really not valuing a lot of those channels, right? We have 500 channels of garbage, sitcoms and old reruns and movies and so forth. Um, and we do that because there's maybe one or two challenge channels that we value, but the way that makes us feel is, is held hostage by the cable provider which is why there was so much pent up anger and demand when Netflix rolls up and says, don't worry about all those other channels, drop your cable plan. We'll give you all the movies you'd ever want for 10 bucks a month. Now, interestingly, if you think about the math, you were getting 500 channels for hundred dollars. That's 20 cents a channel. And Netflix rocks up and says, we're going to charge you 50 times that on a per channel basis, 10 bucks. Yet, because we were able to buy one thing that we wanted and not the other 499 channels that we didn't, we were willing to pay that huge premium on a per channel basis. And so for a lot of entrepreneurs, we're tempted with the shiny ball, adding additional products and services along the way, because we think that's going to add revenue to our company. Yet for an acquirer, they're just like cable, like cable shoppers, just like TV viewers. If they have the choice, they want the one thing and they're willing to pay a significant premium for that if it's truly differentiated. And so her, in Melissa's case, it was this sign-in form at open houses. And she spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of you know cycles building out all this other stuff that probably could have gone into building the sign-in form uh, had she just focused on building the one thing. And so I, I, I think that the channel analogy of, of of Netflix versus the cable package is important for kind of entrepreneurs looking to build to sell. So we have a question, John, and, and everyone put their questions in the chat throughout this whole thing, and we'll we'll pull them. Um, Chris asks, "How do you want, know when to give up on a business? Like, what are the things you've seen in your experience that are good reasons to stop?" Yeah, I think you want some leading indicators and some lagging indicators, right? So most people think about lagging indicators. And in Melissa Kwan's case, a lagging indicator could have been like the size of her company, uh, number of employees, uh, number of locations. That would have all given her father a sense of confidence that she was moving in the right direction. Those are all rear view mirror metrics, which aren't necessarily always that helpful to know when do I quit. I think the when do I quit question comes down to your forward leading indicators, right? So, um, you know, in a forward leading indicator could be your know, number of visits to my website. Cause you know that six months, 12 months down the road, you're going to convert a percentage of those people. And if you can start to retool your website to drive more conversion, you know that if you drive enough people to the top, then you're, you'll be able to get the conversion to work. That's a leading indicator. I see, I, for example, website traffic, number of inquiries. Um, you know, those are all forward-looking indicators. And as long as those are all moving in the right direction, um, then I think you can you can continue on. When when all your leading indicators are looking south and trending south, that's when I think it, it's probably time to retool or rethink. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurs are stubborn, so they may just yeah negate all of those and go with their gut <laughs> yeah for sure yeah yeah and there's 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 lots of folklore that we all uh sort of celebrate right how many times have you heard the colonel sanders story about like him hawking his chicken recipe like a 100 times or whatever before he got the first person to buy the chicken and and that 
unfortunately that story and stories like it, I think do us a bit of a disservice because we sort of celebrate stick to itiveness and determination and, you know, you know, sacrifice at all costs, which I think are admirable qualities. As long as you have some leading indicators that are, that are trending in the right direction. Yeah. Otherwise it's just, you know, you're knocking your head against the wall. So John, the next one, David Dermain uh, uh, co-founded Hotjar. Okay, and talk to people about David and Hotjar. Yeah, I think it's pronounced Darmanin. Darmanin. And, and da yeah, and David, what a cool story. So, so if you've ever uh, wondered where people click on your website, you buy Hotjar. Hotjar, among other things, gives you a heat map of the parts of your website that people click on the most. And they give you a sort of a journey of the average visitor to your website. So if you're an entrepreneur, you've got a website, if you are a, a marketing agency and you do websites for other people or a web developer, it can really give you tremendous insight as to where your your website is working and where you might need to tweak things to get people to, to go on the journey you want them to go on. We use this at Value Builder and it actually, it, it informed a ton about how we redesigned our website just to, to really uh, change the pattern of how people go through it. But it's a cool software. Uh, what's interesting though, and I asked this of David on the, on the, uh, the episode, I'm not sure if you remember it, Jeremy, but I asked him like, was this, a, a new mousetrap. I mean, was there anything like this in in the marketplace at the time? And he's like, I can't remember. Do you remember what he said? It was something like, no, th this was horribly ordinary or something like that. I can't remember exactly well, what he said. He had said as a consultant, I remember him saying like, they use kind of a confluence of these tools that kind of did right. that, but it, it was very complicated, convoluted. So it sounded like there was stuff, but like not really simple that anyone that wasn't like an enterprise that had three consultants working on it could do that's right. that that's yeah, kind of what i stitched, took out of it yeah like i think he'd stitched together a solution um bunch of different stuff so n any one of the parts individually wasn't all that innovative and I, I don't think david would mind me saying that i think he his innovation was in in first of all how he bundled it together into an elegant solution but even more than that was his marketing david's background uh he is a marketing guru and a really really thoughtful human psychologist sort of a student of human behavior he worked um uh at a, at a marketing consultancy prior to starting hot jobs the marketing consultancy uh I'm trying to remember what the name of it is um Conversion rate experts, CRO. I think they've been since acquired, uh, uh, since since David worked there. But he worked as a consultant, and he would work with all these very famous brands. Google was one of his customers on helping them optimize conversion. So he had just a tremendous amount of subject matter expertise into human behavior, in particular online behavior. And so one of the big takeaways for me on the Darman story and Hotchar was his use of a waiting list. And and he in, he in turn got that idea from Robinhood and the way Robinhood launched in the U.S., where they put people behind the velvet rope, and and said you've got to wait to get in. And that's what they did in the case of Hotjar. In fact, in the early days, and David revealed in the episode, it was more of a practical consideration than a marketing strategy. In other words, he had the idea for what he wanted to do but he didn't have the code built yet. So for five months, he had people wait 
on this waiting list. And his genius was to stimulate demand for the product while they were on the waiting list. So he sent these wonderful emails, very personalized emails to this waiting list saying, look, I'm sorry, you know, you're not in yet. We're, we're still working on the product, but, but we're working on this cool new feature and we've got this thing solved and now we're adding this new feature. And all the while he's just anticipating, you know, driving up anticipation among that waiting list. So much so that I think they got the waiting list up to around 30,000 unique companies 60,000 individuals, so on average two people per company. So we had this huge, uh, you know, like massive pent up demand and he started to let the waiting list into, the, into a beta uh, and called it a beta so that their expectations were managed. It wasn't gonna be a perfect product. And they worked with these, these beta users and tried to optimize the product, optimize the product. Then he went at the end of, I think, nine months, seven to nine months, if memory serves, he flipped the beta users to paid and he invited the beta users saying, if you want to continue to use the product, you're going to have to pay. I think he got about 5% of his beta users across the finish line. I think he, he got that after optimizing it up closer to 10%. So he got them across and he said, once we flip the switch, from the free beta to paid and got those five to 10% to, to convert, they were cash flow positive. And what's so cool about this story is you think about, I mean, how many Jeremy stories have we done with tech startups where they go do the friends and family round and then they could do a you know, angel or series A series. By the time they're you know, five years into their business, you know, they're down to single digit equity. And here's David flipping the switch hasn't raised any institutional money, hasn't raised with the exception of his old boss, any outside money. He flips the switch on this product, he's cash flow positive, which gives him enough money to continue to grow the business organically. Get this, they get to 40 million in ARR, annual recurring revenue before he sold it. I mean, like we know what a multiple of ARR is among these software companies. It's usually, like a significant could be can even be double digit multiple of a like he did this bootstrapping it it's unbelievable but it goes back to the power of this marketing approach of waiting list to beta beta to paid and it was really brilliantly executed i have a couple favorites of this episode john and um you asked him what did you tell your parents? <laughs> you and love the soft, warm, and fuzzy stuff, I, don't you? I don't know. It's, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I guess so. But but it's really that support system that helps people, right? And um, you asked him that and um, because he almost felt bad in a way that his dad worked and his parents worked so hard. And then, I mean, he worked hard too, but like he's having this huge exit. And he's he's like, I'm not much different from my parents who work this hard and I have this big X and they don't. Um, Gosh, and I so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I want to I'd like just to hear your thoughts on it. But my favorite part was when he said, actually, you know, his dad was the re I mean, he shared in that success because you were the one who created me, which raised me. And, and ultimately, I have this huge success. So my success is your success in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was an amazing, 
amazing interview. I mean, it's one of my favorite interviews of, of all the 300 or so we've done because it was very practical, hugely tactical, lots of very tangible advice. And then at the end, we got into a very, uh, just a wonderful conversation about the unique dynamics that make an entrepreneur and in particular the, the dynamics between parents. And, and what a contrast now that I think about it, I hadn't thought about it till this moment between Melissa Kwan's story and David's story. So, so David grew up in a, a relatively modest financial circumstances. His parents were Maltese, if memory serves, and they emigrated uh, when David was quite young to Australia. And uh, he, he grew up in Australia, again, not really wanting for anything. He wasn't in the abject poverty, but certainly not affluent. And, you know, his, his dad was successful enough to pay off his home. And, 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 but, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, relatively modest means, if, if I can use that expression. And David has this just unbelievable financial success. And he's young enough that his parents are very much in his life. I mean, he's, I, I'm guessing he's probably in his late 30s, early 40s, something like that. I mean, his parents are not, you know, they're, they're around, they're coming over for dinner. And it's like, all uh, you know, and, and I asked him, because I've heard this from other entrepreneurs, and I said, did, did that get awkward? And I don't know why I asked this. Uh, I think maybe he had mentioned his dad a couple of times because his mom it was also a huge part of his life, made, made a huge impact on on him. And and but, but there was something about his relationship with his dad that I I thought just by his body language or something that that maybe there was some dynamic there. And he said, Yeah, I mean, I think it was tough because on one hand, my dad was super proud of of the you know the fact that he built he built enough equity in his home and he had this, this financial resort and resources because he, he owned his home. And, and his first question to David, when he sold his company, now keep in mind, David built a $40 million ARR business, right? Selling these businesses trade at generally multiples of revenue. <laughs> David's dad's first question was, well, will you have a job? <laughs> And David's like, kind of smiling, saying, but dad, I like, I don't actually need a job anymore, right? Like, because I just, <laughs> but his dad was, you know, it's kind of an old school. And I said, was it awkward with your dad at all? And he said, it may, maybe a little bit, because again, he was his dad. And I think we all, as we get older, we have, I could certainly speak personally, you know, firsthand about this is, is you know, once the, you know, you're not worried about, you know, the, where the next meal's coming from, you climb up Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little bit and, and you want purpose, right? You, you want a sense that your, your life is meaningful and that you, that you've helped people. And in David's case, you know, for his dad, part of his purpose was to, to, to make enough money so that when he passed away, you know, David and his sister would, would be taken care of. Like they, they would, they would have a home and they wouldn't, you know, and here David is kind of blowing that model out of the water, right? Because he's just sold his business. And, and it, I think in a funny way, and it, it may have undermined um, the purpose that his dad had felt for all those years. And so they, you know, they worked through that a little bit. And I think David is, and I, I don't want to spoil the episode. You should listen to it. Uh, but it's um, you being our, I know you've listened to it, Jeremy, but it's a really wonderful, beautiful moment where he acknowledges that his success was actually, as you said, Jeremy, a, a derivative of his entire family. So his mom's right. 
the work that he he did with his mom, uh, certainly his dad's sacrifice, and and also his sister. One of the things David did was buy his sister a home because she's a school teacher who couldn't afford to have her own home. So David, in fact, did that. And so, but it was a wonderful acknowledgement that he had that it was he's actually standing on the shoulder of giants. That he would never be where he is without the sacrifice his parents made. It was a beautiful yep. story. Yeah, I loved it. And tactically speaking, one of my favorite parts was the kind of how he's figured out the freemium model, right? And so yeah. I'm wondering, Jen, your thoughts on, there's probably a million ways to slice it. There's do we two week, you know, two week trial, 30 day trial, 60 day trial, no trial. Um, and he kind of seemed to figure that sweet spot out for, for hot jar. Yeah, I mean, by no means am I an expert in that in that area, but I, but like you, I, I certainly have seen those models, and I think David found um, that they did do uh, a bunch of different iterations, different lengths of time. They, I think, they experimented a thirty day trial, sixty day trial, fourteen day trial. I think uh, you know there there was a freemium model where people could try it, uh, you know, in perpetuity for you know at a very modest feature set. And I think the the answer, like all these things, is is tested, right? At, at one point, um, David shared that the uh, the onboarding of customers for Hotjar was really important, and they learned a bunch of of what to do and what not to do to make sure customers became sticky long term. So there's some, just lots of of kind of lessons there. One of the things we know from the automatic customer book is the importance of cohorts when you're testing stuff is to make sure you can kind of carve out a cohort of customers and 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 treat them and fall kind of watch their behavior as they as their lifetime with you as their journey with you as a customer goes on. So, you know, take a cohort of, you know, customers that had a 30-day trial and see how they convert and how much how long they stay versus those that had a 14-day trial. That's the only only way to optimize. And I think in, in, with these very tactical things, I think it can be it can be dangerous to sort of graft exactly what David did and 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 put it onto a different kind of company with different dynamics. But certainly, there's lessons there, and and I think one of the big ones is just kind of keep testing the cohorts as you go. Yeah. No, I love what you said there because it's easy to look at. Oh, 30 day trial, 50 percent of them convert, but maybe the you know two week trial. 10% of them convert, but the lifetime value is much higher. So I love that you said that because it's it's easy to jump to a conclusion in a very short period of time without knowing the long-term value. Um, put all your questions in the chat. We have a question from Jennifer. Uh, at what point does it make sense to create a board of advisors? And mm, how yeah. do you compensate them? Oh, great questions, Jennifer. <laughs> um, so look, I would just, first of all, just draw the distinction between a board of advisors and a board of directors. So board of directors is a legal construct, right? So people um, will want to have that when they've got multiple shareholders involved, they've got outside investors, for example, um, and their job is to look out for the best interests of the shareholders. So that's a board of directors. Board of advisors uh, is is non-fiduciary. It's meaning it's, you know, it, it is... Uh, you're not in this case looking out for the shareholders. You're looking out more for the entrepreneur, and you're 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 there to be a sounding board for for the entrepreneur. And I think you know the sooner the better. It's it's uh, it's important to think about how you're going to compensate uh, a board of advisors. I think uh, you know part in part they may do it depending on the kind of stage in life they are, uh, just to give back if there's something. Um, you know, very motivating about what you're doing that they would like to be involved in. In other cases, they might, um, you know, appreciate 
you know, their expenses paid or, or, you know, once a quarter at dinner. I mean, it can be fairly superficial. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say superficial. There can be fairly low cost ways to compensate advisors. I think you want to make sure, uh, board of advisors, that you want to make sure you think through uh, inviting people who make a living providing advice. So I think it can be tempting to say, well, I'll ask my lawyer to be on my board of advisors. And I'll ask my, you know, whatever, my my accountant to be on my board of advisors. And I think that gets into a little bit uh, slippery slope because they are paid to give you advice. And so basically what you're asking them to do is do it for free, which isn't really fair to them and, and may also not get you the most uh, clear, unbiased uh, advice. And so I think you'd be better served with people that don't have a conflict of interest more often than not, where there may be other entrepreneurs who've kind of done something similar that you're hoping to do. Uh, and then sort of pay your advisors, like, you know, make sure that you pay good advisors, that you you pay them fairly and that you value their time. But but I would, I would just draw the distinction between traditionally what an advisory board does, which is, is usually a group of people that have sort of done what you are aspiring to do. Um, that would be my thought, Jennifer. Love That's a great it. question. Thanks. The next is David Perry, right? So right. he created a video game company that enables popular games. He co-founded, I think it's pronounced Gakai. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I never really got the proper pronunciation. <laughs> so I'll mess Gakai, it up. Gakai, <laughs> maybe. We'll have to go back and listen to the episode, listen to David. Uh, David describe it and and you're right it was it was a cool business sort of if you will the kind of plumbing of the video game business and I don't mean that in a pejorative way but effectively what he designed was a way to make very high end graphic rich video games play through a web browser and you think well why would that matter well of course most of us have seen you know kids playing uh, you know, on, a, on, a, on an Xbox or whatever, a physical piece of hardware. But increasingly what David saw was that that these games were being accessed through a web browser. So, you, you know, you can envision lots of different applications for that. But once you can stream a game through a web browser, you're independent of the terminal. And so you can imagine that the video game makers would have a huge vested interest in this technology because they're the ones that make the money from the gaming terminals in part, as well as the games themselves. And so what David realized early in the game was that the big video game makers were the most likely acquirers, like the platform company. So I'm thinking of Microsoft and Xbox uh, and Sony with PlayStation. And, and in particular, he thought Sony had a real... Uh, vested interest to buy this technology. So he starts the company in 2008. Now, David, in contrast to our next story from Anthony, that's just foreshadowing Anthony's story a little bit, but what David did was he leveraged his years of experience in the video game industry and a couple of successful exits in his own right and raised a truckload of money for, for this company, like right out of the gate before he uh, you know, sold a single customer, wrote a single line of code. I mean, he had a, a, a whole kind of list of blue chip VCs, institutional investors, giving him a, you know, a lot of money to get this thing off the ground. And so he did exactly that, went from 2008 to having it acquired in 2012, four years later for $380 million. That's an accelerated path to exit. 
that's pretty good speed at, at, at absolute Mach 10. But again, he had a lot of outside money uh, that, that he had invested in the company. The thing that I took away that personally I thought was brilliant, but it's a strategy that any entrepreneur can, can employ, was what he called down the train thinking. Do you remember this comment, Jeremy, in the, in the, ep in the episode, down the train thinking? Or down mm -hmm. the track thinking is what he called it. No, I don't the, remember that one. I mean, maybe yeah, I'll remember so, what he said, but keep going. Yeah, maybe maybe when I describe what he was saying, but and this sets up the kind of key transferable lesson for anybody listening to this. He, he, he described this thing called down the track thinking. He said, look, for most people in an industry, think of it as you're on a train and everybody's on the train. You're all traveling down the, you know, the tracks at hundred miles an hour and the roads are going like the countryside is going by all at the same pace. And everybody's sort of together in the same train car as they go down the tracks. That's an industry. And then he would say, and there are a whole list of people running to try to catch the back of the caboose to try to get on the train. Right. And then there's one or two people that are on the train who are looking at where the train is going, where the next stop is. And he said, that's my superpower. I hmm. think constantly about where the train is going and I'm able to pull myself off the train and think about the next station. And so for David, just to give you a practical example of how that played out, he knew even before he started his company that Sony would likely want to buy his company. He knew Sony is a Japanese company that's steeped in tradition and very proud of their Japanese heritage. So he names the company Gaikai. And again, Gaikai, if you, if you see the spelling of it for a North American, you know, palette, so to speak, it makes no sense. You like, you and I are like, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Gaikai or Gokai or whatever? Like, how, like what, what, it, how, what, what do you do with that? Turns out it's a very common phrase in Japanese. It means open sea. And so, you know, the idea that you have a sort of open vista and the ability to go anywhere. So there's a very literal translation in Japanese. And so, I mean, David went further. He named, I think, some of his products after Japanese heroes. His servers were, ja you know, like the, the actual servers that ran the code were named after Japanese sort of uh, phrases and, and F references. And so when David shows up at Sony and says, look, we built this amazing company. Do you want to buy it? I mean, you know. He was he, he had a very favorable reception from Sony because they already felt like they were you know he was a Japanese company and, and appreciative of sort of the Japanese heritage and culture and way of life and way of doing business. That's an incredible sense of foresight from David to think Sony. But the kind of key lesson I think any entrepreneur can learn is thinking about key decisions from what you name your company, to how you structure it, to what software you use, to whether, you know, what distribution channel you use, et cetera, what sales model you use, thinking all those decisions through, through the lens of who is the natural acquirer for my company? Because when you have a clear picture of the two or three companies that are strategically best positioned to buy your business and you make buying or make investment decisions that will make sure your stock goes up in their eyes, I think it's a great way to run a company. So I really, you know, applaud David for that, that, that sort of down the track thinking. Yeah. And I don't know which interview it was, John, but there have been interviews of on your podcast where people have talked about even identifying who their 
perfect acquirers and even contacting them and keeping, you know, saying, hey, what do we need to do? And them giving advice on where they need to be at when they purchase them someday. So they, some of the, the people you've had on even went one step further and contacted them and then actually updated them on the milestones. So I, I love that. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a common misconception that like in a natural, you know, acquisition, the buyer and the seller don't know one another. There's this great degree of secrecy and they all come together in this sort of, I don't know, immaculate conception. <laughs> like there's like this, you know, like, but in reality, it's far from the truth, right? Most of the times the acquirer knows the seller. Uh, most of the times there's some pre-existing relationship between the two. Oftentimes there's an existing partnership. And so that can be a great strategy and you don't have to sort of be vulnerable and really expose yourself and, 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 and go to a potential acquirer saying, you know, oh, I'd like to know what you would want us to do to, to get acquired because they might not be necessarily that positively inclined towards that, but they, but they oftentimes will look to their partners for acquisition. So I think, you know, pursuing a partnership with a potential acquirer that you know five, 10 years down the road is probably interest, going to be interested in buying your company. I think having, even if, even if the partnerships at a relatively junior level, I think that can be a great strategy. Yeah. And we'll go to the question, but there was a comment he made, like you were talking about down the track thinking for him. And I, I, I can't remember the exact details, but he was giving a lecture talking about the cloud and talking, oh, this is going to happen, whatever three or four years from now, and then someone came up to him from the audience and said, actually, this is what we're creating. And he was like, oh, it's closer than I thought it was. So he was always kind of thinking that one step ahead, even you know, wherever he was at in his career. Yeah, so. I'm really glad you raised this because actually I'd forgotten until you just, the moment you just said that, one of the things I really liked about David, and I, th I think I might've said it on the air, if not, I said it after the fact, and that is, David has demonstrated an incredible natural curiosity. And so he, it's, you know, his current business is in the photography business. He taught himself photography as a sort of acknowledgement of his own relationship with his father, because his father was dying. He was a professional photographer by trade. And before his death, David wanted to have that sort of uh, sense of, of something in common with his adult, you know, as an adult with his, with his father. And so he taught himself photography and he, you know, mastered photography to the extent that now he's got a business in that, in that arena. He, uh, I believe he was a chef and, and like mastered, uh, certain types of cooking knives. He then was kind of curious about what it takes to be a cabinet maker, discovered that one of the hardest things to make in a woodworking, like at a wood is a rocking chair. Who knew? I had no idea, but apparently a rocking chair, given the legs are kind of uh, bowed, it's very difficult to, to, to do. So there was a guy in Ohio that apparently is the world's greatest rocking chair maker. And so David gets on a plane, goes to Hawaii, learns at the foot of this expert. And here's David, you know, he's got nothing to, to, uh, he, no one would, would, fault him for not learning these things. I mean, he's had three or four incredible exits, sold his company to Sony for $380 million. I mean, he doesn't have to get on a plane to Ohio to learn how to make a wooden rocking chair, like, but he does. And it's a good reminder of, I think, one of the superpowers that a lot of entrepreneurs have is just an innate curiosity. They want to learn.
and it's what makes them really good at anticipating the market because they're always asking people, what do you, why do you do that? I mean, Mark Cuban, famous, the shark from Shark Tank and, and others, I mean, he's famous for his curiosity, right? Like he's, he just unpacks people's businesses because he's curious. And I think David is a wonderful example of that. And, and I personally left that thinking, gosh, I'm getting really one-dimensional. Like I'm doing all this stuff for Built to Sell Radio and blah, blah, blah. I've really got to start flexing that curiosity muscle because David was a good wake-up call for me personally. That that And there's so much cross-pollination. He's taking ideas from the photography business, bringing it to his, his video game business, et cetera. But uh, just a great, very inspiring, very motivating interview from that perspective. Yeah, I think what you said there about cross-pollination is huge because, you know, innovations in one industry brought to another, right? Or one, you know, one that's common in one industry is innovation to another. And I, I thought, I took out of that because I agree that stuck out for me too. And he used it to bond with other people. Like he would do something random. Like I think he said, I'm going to do skydiving just so when I meet someone who skydives, I can relate to them. And it was, he almost has that curiosity. Then he uses it to bond with humans uh, so that yeah, he can have those experiences to share. So I thought that was, that was really interesting. Um, one of the questions uh, we have, Paul asked a question, uh, which is what is the best way to think about giving equity to staff uh, who are coming in? Um, and he said, if I'm self-funding and put a lot of time in, the other person will be guaranteed a salary but maybe getting paid less than what they would if they took a position somewhere else. Yeah, great question, uh, Paul. So, so lots to unpack there. First thing I would ask yourself is, do they want equity? I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs just assume that people want equity because that's what they want. And that's the currency that they are most motivated by. Yet some employees are employees for a reason and, and, and forcing them and trying to make them into an entrepreneur by giving them options or shares or whatever. It, it may be way less valuable in their eyes than an extra week of holiday or you know, like a, a, you know, other more flexible options, more flexible work experiences than stock options. So first of all, I would ask you, you know, is, are they really motivated by stock options? The second thing I would, I would say on stock options is, is there any liquidity for the company? Like what are the prospects for liquidity in the intermediate to long term? You know, if you're in a service business um, where you don't have any you know, productized offerings, the assets go up and down the elevator every night, as David Ogilvy said. You know, your prospects for some spectacular exit may be fairly limited, and therefore stock may be of limited value. Options may have no value, and again, I think it, it can be tempting to want to feel like you're rowing all in the same direction. But, but if the prospects for having a liquidity event, a sale, are limited in scope, then stock options may not make sense. We just did a, a built to sell radio episode. It hasn't gone live yet, uh, but the entrepreneur used phantom equity in that case. Actually, no, I'm sorry, it did it did go live. It went live last Friday, Rob Glazer. So we'll, we'll chat about Rob next time on built to sell Intel. But Rob Glazer used stock options. He was in a marketing service business because it was his feeling that, you know, that was a fair way to do it, uh, phantom equity as opposed to real equity. Um, Paul, in your case, you're asking someone to work for less than their market rate. 
in return for some sort of upside. So I think you could use, you know, phantom stock to to to, to true that person up, or you know, real stock options uh, is a, is another way to go. I would just encourage you to think through if it if it's truly real stock options, you know, is there a prospect in the intermediate term to to make those into real. Uh, you know, liquid money, and if not, then then maybe a phantom program or some sort of bonus program might might make better sense. That's a great point. Like, what does the actual person the person even want, right? So, yeah, again, like we're not everybody's an entrepreneur, and I think we can we have a bias because that's what we are, and assume everybody would, and not in many cases that's not necessarily the most motivating form of compensation. Yeah. The next one. John was was Anthony who built Altrius Benefit Consulting. Yeah, nothing sexy about this business. I mean, every one of us can envision a benefits consulting business, right? So effectively, you you hang out your shingle, you knock on the door of businesses, and you say, "What's your benefits program?" Uh, if you know, I can probably get you a better deal if I do some consulting and think through what, what coverage you need, what insurance packages you need, and then basically sell that that opportunity to the big insurance providers, uh, the healthcare providers in uh, in the U.S. Again, this is different. We've got listeners all over the world. Some place have nationalized health system where this this benefits consulting is less kind of developed. In the United States, of course, where the healthcare system is more uh, for profit based. It's it's a much much more mature market. And so, what Anthony built was a, a two and a half million dollar company. Think about this in contrast with what David Perry did, because I think it's it's a beautiful juxtaposition of two very different approaches to entrepreneurship. David Perry got the brand name VCs, raised a truckload of money, and 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 sold you know sold sold the business, and everybody kind of profited. In the case of Anthony, he held on to all, all the equity himself. He built this consultancy with two and a half million dollars in revenue, with sixty percent, six zero percent EBITDA profit margins, sixty percent. Very lean. Didn't hire a bunch of people. Just had a handful of helpers in the business. He kept hundred percent of the equity in the business. Ultimately, went on to sell it for around eight times EBITDA. And if you're doing the math. It was a financially windfall for Anthony. It was incredible business. Yet a lot of people would kind of look down on a little, when I say little, I'm using air quotes, little couple million dollar business with a few employees. Like he's not impressing people at cocktail parties with a couple of employees and a $2 million business. That's not, that's not noteworthy for most people. And it can be, I think, tempting as a result for a lot of entrepreneurs to kind of go the David Perry route, right? Like raise a bunch of money and build the next Amazon, the next Netflix or whatever. Um, but in a funny way, I think your chances of becoming kind of financially independent and wealthy are much higher <laughs> if you go the Anthony, Anthony route where you know you find a little corner of the market, you offer great customer experiences, amazing loyal customers, you know, keep it lean and you build to sell and ultimately exit I mean, Anthony will never have to worry about money for the rest of his life, even though an outsider may not have looked at his business and thought, oh, we, you know, he's, he, you know, he's really successful. But I mean, if you look at his pocketbook and his bank account, he's really successful. Uh, but 
but it's just a good reminder of, of the age old question. I think we all have to ask at some point is, would you rather, you know, a small slice of a big pie or would you rather the whole pie, even though the pie itself may be smaller? In Anthony's case, he landed on the ladder and wanted 100% ownership. And I, and I just think it's one of those unanswerable questions for most owners. But I think it, it, it makes sense for us to really think through that answer before we get too far down the track. One thing that stuck out, and I'm curious if there are any other takeaways, but was the non-negotiables. You had a lar- lot of conversation around non-negotiables. You even challenged him on one of his non-negotiables and be like, really, is this a non-negotiable? Are you going to you know, get, not do the deal because of your brand, right? And um, so I want you to speak to non-negotiables maybe in this interview, but in general, what are some common non-negotiables you see people have when they're looking to sell? You know, because maybe people even even haven't even thought, what are my non-negotiables? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one is what's your role after the transaction? I think that's just a fundamental, you know, uh, you know, we can talk valuation all day long, but if you have to stay in the company for seven years in a in a like an earnout, you know, that may make valuation less attractive if if the earnout is is really long or really punitive or incredibly hard to reach, et cetera. So I think I think probably the single most important non-negotiable is thinking through what are you prepared to do after the sale. And look, let me be crystal clear. Every acquirer is going to insist, demand that you participate in some sort of transition period. If you're lucky enough to have a, a manufacturing company, a technology company, that may be a short, you know, three, six month window. It's very rare much, much more common is one of two scenarios. One, you have to roll some equity into a new entity where you become a minority shareholder. This is very common in when a private equity company buys your business, when you become a minority shareholder, but still a manager in your own business. And in order to effectively get the most for that that remaining tranche of your equity, you continue to manage and grow your business. Are you willing to do that? And and for people who want to just, you know, diversify their wealth a little bit, but still want to go to work every day and love the business that they're running, that can be a great exit, right? Other people, the other, the second way that this, this plays out is an earnout where you get an upfront payment and there's a sequence of future payments, one big one or a multiple series of payments, if you hit certain goals into the future. And you may say, I'm up for that. I'm really bullish on the future of my company. I think this union is like a peanut butter jelly kind of combination. It's, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. Fantastic. Then an earnout may make some sense. For other people, they're like, I'm just not the employable type. I don't you know, play nice in the sandbox. I don't want an earnout. I'm, I'm willing to take a much lower valuation because I'm, I'm willing to do a one-year transition tied to my tenure, not tied to, et cetera. So I think really you want to think through that. Here, here's the, the punchline. The more you're willing to participate in the future of your business success, the higher the valuation generally, right? The more you're going to get in terms of the overall valuation if you demonstrate a willingness to participate. So know that if you just kind of, you know, wipe your hands and say like, I want 100% of my cash at closing and then I'm going to walk away 30 days later, know that you're going to leave a truckload of money on the table by doing that. Someone might take that offer, but it's going to be a, it's going to be much more difficult to get that deal done. So look, non-negotiables, I think the biggest one is like, what do you personally uh 
you know, want for your role. The other one that we don't talk enough about on, on Built Cell Radio, but we should are reps and warranties. So, you know, what are the insur assurances that you are making uh, that are truthful that if you are found out to be lying or untruthful or deceptive in any way, the acquirer can come back at you personally and sue you. And again, the, the longer the list of those guarantees you make, the, the more opportunity you have to be, you, the more exposure you have, right? So, so what are the reps and warranties that you are willing to represent? Like, for example, you know, something like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to guarantee that we've, we've paid all our taxes over the last five years. Like we, 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 we filed tax returns. That might be something very, very easy for you to agree to. Um, you know, the fact that customer A is going to continue paying this invoice that's that's 60 days, when you don't control how the invoices are being collected after the fact, you may not be as prepared to do that. Maybe, that may be a bad example of an AR. Uh, you know, working capital is another thing to think about. A lot of people put a, you know, a lot of money away in a rainy day fund that's still in their company. It's there just because they don't want to pay tax on it, right? It's like, you know, retained earnings. Most acquirers will take the position that like that's our money. If we buy your shares, we get all of the the you know the the ongoing business and including the money in the bank. Most sellers say, no, oh, those are my retained earnings over 20 years. That I got, I'm going to scrape those out before. So again, you want to make sure it's clear upfront, non-negotiable. I'm scraping out two million dollars worth of retained earnings. That's an important thing to make sure you're clear about. Another one that's more emotional. Uh, that that certainly came up in the Anthony Fracchia interview was the name, right? Like it's important that your name continue on after you sell your company. If your last name is in your business, you may not want that, right? You think about, you know, if you don't control your company anymore, yet everybody you know thinks you're the owner of XYZ company. And, and when that company screws up or does something that gets in the media, do you really want your your name out there right other people they they it's it's just like an important motivation for them to see their name in lights forever so they want to see that their company is going to to exist long after they're gone and and for those people you're going to want to make sure that the acquirer isn't able to change the name for a period of time so these are all things examples of non-negotiables i've seen uh, the other one is how employees are going to be treated, right? A lot of people want to make sure that, you know, you're not going to fire my employees. You're not going to move physically the office so that, you know, my employees makes it un impractical for them to come to work. These are all things you want to make sure uh, you think through, you know, someone could, could offer me all the money in the world, but if they don't meet these three criteria, I'm not doing the deal. Love it. So, John, uh, last question. Um, uh, this is from Bill, and this may be stemming from that the Anthony, you know, his business started as a family business, sort of. But Bill's question is, what are big mistakes you have seen when selling a business to another family member or passing it down? Oh, gosh. Uh, where do I start? You love these family business questions. <laughs> I love these. <laughs> Bill, just don't do it, man. Just sell your company. If you want to give your your offspring a truckload of money, sell it and divvy it up among your offspring. But uh, look, I'm I don't mean to be glib, but I'm not a huge uh, fan of, of of selling or passing down the business to the kids. I've just seen so many examples of it uh, where 
I mean, there's another example in Toronto. I just heard about it. A very successful business where the son came into the business as a very successful executive. He'd had his own success, his own careers. The dad was in the sort of twilight years of the business. There's all kinds of weird stuff between dads and their sons, but the son and the dad have now had a huge blow up. They've separated. The dad has now gone away and created a competing company in the exact same industry, in the exact same city. And if you can believe it, in the exact same building. And, wow. And and I just think, oh my gosh, like he, neither of these two individuals need the money, need the career step up that taking over your father's business gives you. And I don't mean to be gender specific. It happens to be a father-son. In this case, it could easily be a father-daughter uh, or mother-son. But it just boggles the mind why why people a want to take over the family business b want to give the business to their kids i just it i've just again it's a very personal question I, and i acknowledge that there's a range of attitudes on this point on this score and i appreciate that people have different life experiences on this the sole summary of my life experience 50 whatever years on the planet is that this is always a mistake, that you should never under any circumstances pass your business, sell your business to your kids. I can just list off example after example after example of my own, my own life, people I know in firsthand who have ended up in ir irreconcilable differences with the people they love the most on the planet. And I just think the business is not that important. Money's not that important. The people in your life are way more important than any money you could make or any money they could make. So savor the relationship and sell your freaking business to somebody else. And if you want to pass your money on to your kids, that's something you could do in your will. But you got don't have to pass on your business to your kids. Now you got me going. I'm, I'm just getting started here, <laughs> Jerry. You're gonna you're gonna get me in all sorts of trouble for this. Well, I'm glad question. we we let. <laughs> Bill's question for last, the best for last. So. <laughs> but uh, but thank you. I want to tell everyone, go to builttosell.com. Check out more. I know that there's uh, builttosell.com slash SOP because I know that's a popular uh, place that people yeah, go to get. on creating standard operating procedures, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all the shows, like if you want to go back and listen to Dave Darman and see the show notes, they've all got show notes, which we work hard on, which are, uh, you know, any of the links associated with the episodes. And again, you just, you can Google like, whatever the name of the entrepreneur, Dave Perry built to sell radio and it will pop up and the show note page is, is right there. So you can grab the show notes and there's transcripts and there's all kinds of goodies. So uh, I think just encourage people who want to kind of reference back to some of the links and stuff to just grab the show notes. Right. Well, thanks, John. Thanks everyone. Thank you. It was great to be with you again. Jeremy is my partner in crime in this and uh thank you to all of our listeners to built to sell radio it uh, means the world to me that you uh you find the show helpful and we'll see you again next month and uh next week if you're a big regular listener to built to sell radio thanks again built to sell radio is produced by haley parkhill our audio and video engineer is dennis labataglia if you like what you've just heard subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week just go to built to sell.com.